our time, uh, Patricia and I, with you is coming to a close. And uh, as, we were as we were singing, um, we came here, you know, because of the year and everything else, just unbelievably exhausted in heart, mind, soul, and spirit, and body. And I can't thank you all enough for uh, how you've loved us and how you've allowed us to be renewed um, by coming into the presence of God together. I, I can't tell you, I think every, every time we sang before every meeting, I think God just brought me to the point of release and tears, just overwhelmed at his love and by his goodness, his grace. And, uh, and it wasn't just the music, it was just also just being able to bask in the love and grace of God that's flowing out of each of you. And I know some of you are just seeking him still and know him from afar. But I hope that, you know, this weekend will be a step in your story, a journey that brings you closer and closer into the arms of the one who loves you so much. And for those of you that have come here with incredible pain and heartache and a number of other things like that, I just pray that you would let him just wash over you and just embrace you. But anyway, I just, uh, for, on behalf of me and Patricia, I just truly, truly want to thank you all because I think that you all have put so much back into us in these days. And, um, you know, um, that, was, that, was, that was really the reason. I think we needed you guys a lot. And just really thank you for uh, being here for us uh, this week. Um, let me get this thing here so we can get technically set up. We mentioned the first day that in terms of this story, that there, this was not just any story. It, it is the story of stories when we look at Christ. But Christ also, as the author and perfecter of our faith, is writing within each of us what I just feel like I call here just the masterpiece. And what I'd like to do is share with you today, I think, six threads through that story. You know, we talked about how in a great book, you know, or in, even in a great piece of music, there's a certain lines that go through it. And they come to some sort of final resolution at the end of the book. I'll just tell you for now that the resolution of some of those threads will take place in the ages to come. Because your story is a lot longer than what we'll see on Earth. But I wanted to begin today and return to this man that Patricia mentioned yesterday at the beginning, Uncle Abraham, the guy that got the call and left based upon one call, you know, one, one voice that he heard. And as I've thought about his life a lot, one of the things that I, I, I'll just ask you to turn to this is Genesis 17, 7. There are several times through the story of Abraham that God comes to him and repeats to him the promise that he gives to him. And a lot of times when we're thinking about Abraham and God's promise to Abraham, we, we hone in on what God is going to do. We're going to multiply, I'm going to multiply you, you know, and your descendants as the sands of the seashores and, you know, of all the stars in the heavens. And I'm going to make a great name and a great nation of you. And, and we think about those sorts of things. 
But really, those things are just kind of the results, some of the outward results of it. But the heart of what God is promising is really a covenant that he wants to enter into with Abraham. And because we're all descendants of Abraham in faith, it's the covenant that he wants to enter into with you personally. And, and, and there's two, two words in here, two phrases in here that I think really get overlooked. And what I'd like to do is just suggest that these two phrases are kind of the main points of the story. And then, then there's other threads then that connect those two main points and make them work out in your life. So the first one here in Genesis 17, 7, he says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So overlooked. But the heart of what God is calling Abraham to and what he's promising, he says, I will be God to you. We don't understand how stunning that is. You know, when I tell my wife, Patricia, I'm your lawfully wedded husband, and I'm going to be your sweetheart and your love, I hope that means something to her. <laughs> you know, when I tell my daughter, I'm your daddy, that means something. When I tell my son, I'm your father, I'm your friend, that means something. Now think about this. God is saying, I'll be God to you. Can you wrap your minds around that? That he wants to be God to you. Not God out here, but your God. God to you. And that's the heart of the story for Abraham because the unfolding of his life was Abraham coming to a greater and greater understanding of what it meant for God to be God to Abraham and his generations after that. We may have a lot of other things that take the place of God that kind of are counterfeit gods that are caricatures and cartoons and trivial depictions of God. But when God says, I will be God in all my fullness to you, that's a stunning thing that we just can't understand, folks. We just can't understand. Can you just walk out here into the woods and just kind of begin to think about that? Just think, God just told me he wants to be God to me. And all the implications of that. It's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it, when you think about it? And so Abraham's life and faith journey was really about understanding that promise and understanding that commitment that God was making to him. And it wasn't about all this stuff I'm going to give you and all this stuff I'm going to do through you. It was at the core of your being, I'm going to be your God. In 1 John, let's turn over to 1 John 2, 14 and 15, uh, 2, 12 through 14 for a second. We're going to kind of hit a couple of verses here. But I want you to kind of get these verses and nail them down. Uh, 
Okay, they're sticking together. John, John is the last living original of the 12. And John has a unique ministry, whereas a lot of the other apostles wrote to their generation, John is in his late 80s, 90s maybe, the one that wasn't martyred or killed, you know. And his, it falls upon John, both in the Gospels of John, but also in the letters of John, to begin to communicate to a generation that didn't live as a contemporary of Jesus who Jesus was. So the, the gospel of John is that way. Rather than a historical account, it's like a man that goes back to the old photo albums and pulls out the old favorite pictures of Jesus and said, look at this. Let me, let me show you this picture and let me tell you the story behind it. And that's kind of the way the gospel of John is written to say, this is who Jesus is. But you get down to this point where he's talking to the church, and he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. What's interesting here is he's talking to children, young men, and fathers. Not literally. What he's talking about is people that are at different stages of their experience with Christ. The newest followers of Christ, those that have gotten underway a little bit, and those that have been walking with him a long time. And he says, you know, if you're a child, if you're one that's just come to Christ, he says, he says, you're excited about the fact that your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And you've come to know a father, a heavenly father that you didn't know before. And isn't that true? When you first come to Christ, isn't that exciting? That just the realization that God has forgiven my sins and I have a father who loves me. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's, you're fired up about that. But you go along a little bit more and you begin to experience the power of God in your life. And you begin to see God use you. And what does he say to the young men then? He says, you're excited about the fact that you have overcome the evil one. And you are strong and the word of God, of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So we come to a point in our spiritual experience where we're beginning to see and understand the power of God in and through our lives. And, and that fires us up. That gets us excited. You know, this, this thing about God and who he is and his power is real. And then he talks to those that have been on the journey a long time. And he says, you know, though, as the years go by, you realize That in spite of all of that, the truly awesome thing is that you know him. That I know God. That I know God. And so right away, you know, that was kind of the point where with Abraham, you know, he went through the challenges where he's struggling to see the power of God in his life. How can I have a child when I'm at this age? 
Will you protect me when I go off into Egypt? You know, will you provide for me as I'm wandering around here? But I think he came to the point at the end where it's like, I can trust God. I know God. So, you know, this week I hope that as you're excited about all these things that God is doing, that long range, your focus that's saying the most significant thing, the most satisfying thing about me at the end of it all is that I know him. I know him. And so God says in the second part, and, and it's not in just in here, but it's in the, other in the other statements of the blessing to Abraham. He says, I'm going to be God to you, and now you be a blessing. Wherever you go, wherever you wander, wherever you show up, whatever circumstance that you're in, you be a blessing. Now that's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because it's not, it's, it's more than just saying, bless you, <laughs> you know. It's more than just kind of saying nice things. It's about the quality of your life. Because this is about you being a blessing wherever you are. And so I've thought about that because we live in a world that's really, really challenging, isn't it? And so we're at one, of the, one of the places that gave me some insight was in Jeremiah 29, 7. This is all kind of the setup to the threads, okay? So just kind of a long-winded way of teeing up the ball here. <laughs> somebody, got, somebody turned there already? Somebody read that for me out loud, 29.7. And seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in peace thereof shall ye have peace. Okay. Does somebody else have another, another translation there? Yeah. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Okay. And other translations will say the welfare. Is that, is that what yours says? No. Go ahead and read. Sorry. Go ahead. Your welfare. Welfare? Is that what? Your welfare. Your welfare. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Do we do we live in a world that's messed up? Yeah, we do. And it couldn't have been more messed up than the world that Jeremiah was writing into. The people had been carried off into Babylonian captivity. And in the middle of the, and then so when they arrive in captivity, God didn't say, look, what we need to get together is that we need to kind of quietly, clandestinely get together and establish little cell groups and really begin to start a resistance movement, you know, an underground, you know, and we're going to take back over this thing or we're going to escape, you know, and we're going to turn it upside down. No, it's interesting. He takes the exiles who are going to this god-awful place in bondage, and he says, I want you to seek the welfare of the place in which you come. The word welfare there, or peace and prosperity, is the word shalom. To seek the shalom of the place that you're in. 
And this has been challenging me the, for, for many years now that it's, it's, it's kind of an, an, an Old Testament way of saying, be salt, be light, be seed where you are. Wherever you are, in the families that God's put you into, in the networks, the organizations, the circles that you're in, the cities that you're in, the communities that are in, let God be your God. Let God be God to you. And with him in your corner like that, you seek the shalom of the place in which you're found. And I think a lot of times what we don't do is that we, we can resist it, we can critique it, we can be angry at it, we can try to escape from it, we can isolate ourselves from it, but God says, I want you to be involved in the place where I put you and to seek the shalom of the place. It's welfare and it's peace because in seeking those things, you'll receive those things. So how does that change your view of the world that you're entering into and the responsibility that God's given you to go? Be a blessing. Seek the shalom of the place that you're in. You're going to find yourself in situations in the world that are unbelievably difficult. Some of you are already there in terms of, say, with family. I know Patricia and I came out of both non-Christian families. You know, and when Patricia came to Christ and when we got married as a result of the animosity that they had, her, her dad had toward the faith, her faith, she was disinherited. You thought, how is that possible in this day and age? Two weeks after we were, we were married, we went back and signed the papers that disinherited her from her family. But rather than saying, forget about this, you know, we're just going to move across the country and if that's the way it's going to be, it's that's going to be. God put it on our heart to say, you know, if, if we don't reach this family for Christ, there's not anybody there that's going to do that. And for whatever reason, God has reached down and put us into each of these families and we're citizens of the kingdom, we're gods, we're going to seek the shalom of these families. And over the next 25, 30 years, we saw her mom come to Christ. You know, up until the day her dad passed away, we were sharing Christ with him. My mom, my brother, my sister came to Christ, my dad. And even though the family dynamics haven't, you know, just become miraculously changed, we know that God put us in those families and, and we endured 25 years of going back and going back and going back. But that was the commitment to seek the shalom of the place that we're in. And, and in now, in, in terms of our work and our neighborhoods and things like that, that's the thing that drives us is we show up and say, how can we be a blessing? How can we seek the shalom of the place? And in doing so, people begin to see the God who is ours. So that's kind of the starting point here in terms of this. And so I'd like to kind of share with you now six what I call divine threads that connect the dots between God saying he wants to be your God and you being the bearer of blessings in this world. You with me? You guys doing okay? All right. The first one is faith. But I want to say this about faith. How many of you, how many of you 
have said this to yourself. I have a really hard time trusting God. I struggle with it. Sometimes it's hard to trust God, right? And so we're always kind of working on this whole idea of how do we trust more? I got I to gotta trust God. I got to trust God. But think about it this way. Really, the beginning, God, God didn't come to Abraham and says, you got to trust me. He said, I'm going to be God to you, and I'm going to show you who I am. And as you look at Abraham's life unfold, he comes to a fuller and completer and more intimate knowledge of God. Can you trust somebody that you don't know? No. And if, you're, and, if you're, and if your knowledge of somebody is really kind of misunderstandings, misrepresentations, you know, half-baked ideas, you know, someone else's ideas, can you trust that person? No. And so I would just say that the first thing God wants us to do is have a life that's characterized by faith. But the starting point is not to try to work up more trust. The starting point is get to know the one who can be trusted. And I think that's where Abraham came to, where at the end of his life, when God said, I want you to take your one and only son, your only son, whom you love, <laughs> and I want you to sacrifice him for me, that he did. And God said, you got it now. You know? And so I, I would say that the starting point is what God is trying to do is not help you work up a better faith. What he's trying to do is he's trying to help you have a more intimate and clearer understanding of who he is. I was sharing with some of the guys last night ago, I think, when we were in Davis, I had this Bible study in a fraternity on the Davis campus. And, you know, um, I, you know, so none of these guys knew Christ. There's only one guy who said, I've been in a church one time because of a wedding. <laughs> you know, I said, okay. But, but we're interested, Dan. So I said, well, when can we meet? And he said, well, the only time we can all get together because everything is midnight. <laughs> so Tuesday night at midnight, we, I'd come over to the fraternity house, and there'd be like eight or ten guys there. Nobody had a Bible, so I'd kind of have to, you know, copy out the page, you know, of the chapter we were going to study, and we would have this, we were going through John a chapter at a time. And always the discussion would start well, why do you Christians do this? Why do you Christians act like this? Why do you Christians believe this way? And I said, well, what, tell me about it. What do you mean? And then they would talk about something that they'd read in the papers or seen on the news and everything else like this. And, and you know, what, well, how God looked like through that. And I said, well, shoot, I, I don't blame you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if God was like that, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't blame you. You know, I, I'd be right with you on that. But is, is, that, is that what we see of Jesus? And we would go into the scriptures and we would look at that. And about two months later, it was really interesting. You're moving your way through the Gospel of John. And all of a sudden, they're kind of rooting for Jesus against the bad guys, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And the conversation changed. And I noticed their conversation changed because it was like they were not Christians or followers of Christ. There was Christians. And then there was Dan and Wade who were not neither. We were their friends who were helping them learn about Jesus. And over the next year and a half, every single one of those guys came to become followers of Christ. Because they learned that Jesus 
was different than all of these other caricatures and images of who they are. And I would dare say, though, that even though you're followers of Christ, a lot of times the reason trust is hard is that we don't have a, we don't have a clearer, more complete understanding of who he is. And so the passion of our heart as a beginning point is to say, I really want to know this one who says, I want to be your God. Because the more we know him, the more we can trust him. And what's, what's interesting here is that that understanding is brought to fullness through the trials of life. We were talking, where's Hannah? We were, t- we were talking with you, you know, and you were talking about how because you've been kind of thrust into the situation where you had to be responsible for your finances. And you've seen God provide for you like miraculously two days before you needed the money, you know, to whatever it was. You know, if, if you had never gone through that, you would never know him as the God who provides. If you've never been lonely, you would never know him as the God as, who's the friend who will never leave you or forsake you. You know, if you've never sinned, you would never know him as the merciful and gracious God who loves you. If you weren't overwhelmed and didn't have him come to you, you would never know him as the God who is all powerful. And so that's why James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. But you can see how There are no ordinary days and events because every one of these events in our lives is designed to help us not grow in our trust, but to know him. And as a result, we trust. Does that make sense, guys? So in your in your wake in in your every waking moment, have your face turned to him and say, I want to know you. I want to know you better today, more intimately, more clearly, you know? And you'll find a God who's just waiting to do that. The second part of that, though, is that beyond your faith, he wants to build hope in your life. When we went through a time, like I said, 25 years ago or so, when we went through a time that was parallel to this time, it was a time where I really, I really struggled with my faith. After having few doubts, I was consciously getting up every morning and thinking, okay, this is either a colossal joke or God is real and I've got to trust him. But I just can't do this in neutral. I have to make an active decision today which way I'm going to approach the world. And it would seem like every time we'd get down and think, okay, it can't get any worse than this, it did. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, it's like the old saying that the light of the incoming, uh, 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 you know, at the end of the tunnel is the, the light of an oncoming train. And that's the way it, that's the way it felt, you know, a lot of times like that. But um, after we went through and we were processing what happened, a friend of mine says, Dan, you lost your hope, but your hope didn't lose you. And, and I think that there's something different about Christian hope. Jesus' hope than kind of the hope, the speculative hope that says, I hope something will happen. I hope it'll get better. The hope that he wants to give us is something more assured, more solid. Something that anchors our soul. And it's not just, I hope it'll happen, but a hope that is true. 
And then we find that the hope is not in the changing of circumstances, you know? But the hope is knowing that there's somebody that's there to hold us and not lose us. And how many times, Patricia and I prayed, Lord, just don't let go of our hands. Don't let go of our hands. You know, some of you have little ones here, and you're kind of going through that experience where the little one just grabs a hold of your hand and doesn't want to let go or leave your side. And that was kind of us. All the time now, really, but, <laughs> you know. But I wanted you to turn to 1 Peter here, 3.15 for a second, and I want to zero in on this because I want to kind of say that there is another dimension of this hope. And so somebody that's quick and turning their pages, and I don't want to put my glasses back on. <laughs> who, 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 somebody read for, yeah, go ahead, Austin. Now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't be afraid and don't worry. Instead, you must worship Christ as your Lord of your life, and if you are asked about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. Okay, another translation here. Who's got another one? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, it's an interesting phrase, and it? it says, always being ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is within you. Now, has anybody just ever walked up to you while you're walking across campus and said, hey, you know, I was just kind of watching you over here on my way to campus, and I, I had to come over and talk to you because I just saw this hope emanating from you. And I wanted to know where this is coming from, you know? Oh, you know, where do you get some of that, man? You know? No, you know, that's, that's not the way it works. But it's saying to get, always being ready to give a defense to the hope that is in you. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kind of put this forward. I think there's two things that happen, okay? One is I think because we don't kind of root our lives in the hope that's within you, there's nothing for people to read. The other thing is I don't think we always realize the question, and that's probably more the key. We don't realize the question when people are asking us. Because they're not going to come out and say, hey man, you know, tell me about that hope. They're going to say, as, as we're finding, as, as we're going through what we're going through, that every, everywhere we go in town, the underlying question as people find out what's happened to us is they're asking without asking, how did you survive? How do you live through that? How do you have hope? How do you keep it together? How do you manage? And all of those are kinds of questions that really are revealing that people are looking for hope at a deep level of their lives. But the way they ask it is, are, are those kinds of questions. Now, the word Defense here is apologia. It's, the, it's, it's, it's like in a courtroom where somebody's saying, ask you to defend it. And what they're saying is that you've got to give an apologetic. You have got to kind of give a defense and the argument and state the case and say, this is why I believe. And so we have to live a lot closer from the scriptures to the things that are going on in our lives so that as our lives are more and more closely aligned with the scriptures, if somebody says, Dan, Patricia, how can you survive that? How can you deal with those things? We can say, well, 
it's tough. But here's what we found. Does that make, you see what I'm saying here? And so I think one of, the, one of the keys to evangelism in this age is that we have to first know him, begin to build our lives around the hope that's in him as we begin to see him help us reconstruct our lives in him. And then we've got to be ready to kind of, in humility and authenticity, respond to people when they ask you, how do you handle that? How do you get through that? You know, how do you answer that? And think it through. And now you're speaking at a, at a very intimate level with people. The third part is love. We've been talking a lot about God's love here the last day or so. And, and, uh, and so I don't want to, you know, I don't need to kind of go into that, that we know that we're supposed to love others. We know God loves us. But I, I, I want to offer two things here, just kind of some practical bits of advice, hopefully, here. One is that the ability to love others really begins by answering this core question. I think Brennan Manning was the one that said this question, wasn't it? He said, when we come before God, he said, God's only going to ask you one question. And the question is like, did you do good? Did you believe me? You know, did you obey me? You know, all of these things. He said, you know, you're going to have a father who's loved you as a child, who gave his son for you, and he's going to ask, did you believe that I loved you? And I think until we grasp, grasp that question, it's really hard for us to love others. But when we grasp that question and we really come into the kind of the full realization of what it means that God really loves us, that we can't help but love others. And, and then and we think about what does it mean to love others? I think we think about, I think, you know, there's all kinds of things that are going through your mind. You know, we, we learn to forgive. We learn to hang with people through things. You know, there's a lot of things like that. But let me just kind of give you a couple of things here that are practical. One thing I find is that over time, I'm appreciating what I would just call the more humble gifts that God gives us. You know, a lot of times in these days, we, we, you kind of glorify the ability of the preacher, the evangelist, you know, the leaders and things like that. But when we think about kind of the warp and woof of life, I find that the things that over time that are having the most impact with our neighbors, our colleagues, our families are the more humble gifts. The gift of serving. The gift of hospitality. You know? The gift of generosity. And, and, and those are not just about building up the body of Christ. We find that in these days, it's, it's rare anymore for somebody to invite you over to their home for a dinner. They'll take you out to entertain you. But it's something else to kind of come and have a simple meal in your home. You know? It's something else to just be able to look at a neighbor in need across the street and go over 
and just put some cash in their hands. You know, no tax deductions involved. Sorry about that. No tax relief. But real generosity, right? Or to bring a meal by. Or to just sit with me and Patricia in the ashes for days at a time. You know, choking on the ash and sifting through the ashes to find nothing but being there. The other thing is that just the whole idea of everyday kindness becomes a lot more important in this world. We stage too much, I think, sometimes as Christians. We try to set up that home run conversation, you know? We try to set up kind of the event that's going to kind of, okay, it's just going to crush it, you know, and people are all going to, when really a lot of times it's revealed in the everyday kindnesses, you know? And I think Jesus was showing that in reverse sometimes, you know, when you say, hey, how about a cup of water? How about I come over to your house for dinner? You know? And, and so I would say that don't despise the ordinary gifts and the everyday kindnesses as a real key to demonstrating love in our world. It's a lost art. When we live in a world that's too staged, too pre-thought through, you know, rehearsed, that the spontaneous acts of kindness like this are huge. And then just being there. Just be in there. The other part of this love piece, though, is that being there can sometimes mean being there for years and decades. Sometimes it's just being there at the right place at the right time. But other times, like with our families, we had no guarantees. But we thought, you know, we're citizens of the kingdom, and God has put us into this family. From before time, he knew we would be the only Christians here. And if he wasn't calling us to be good news to our families, then we don't get it. And so 20, 25 years of hanging in there. And you're going to have relationships like that where you're going to have to work through that because your attitude and your response, it's not about how they treat you. It's about how you serve them. You have the grace to handle whatever they throw at you. Your job is say, How do I love these people? Faith, hope, love. Gene Getz said this was just a mark of maturity a long time ago. When, when you read the Apostle, the Apostle Paul's letters, you'll notice these three themes coming over. And he'll look at a church and saying, you're doing great here, but somebody's messing with your faith. You know? You know, he'll write to the Thessalonians saying, you know, you've got strong faith. You've got strong love, but somebody's messing with your hope. So he talks about hope. And so I think that in terms of our world, you know, how, do you, how are you doing? How am I doing as a follower of Christ? I think can be answered, am I growing in my knowledge of him and thus my faith? You know, am I bringing who I am and what I'm going through to him so that he can transform me and establish hope in me for change and being ready to share with others? And then am I in an ordinary daily way ready just to love people in the moment or through the years as necessary, but always driven by an understanding, motivated, inspired by an understanding that I understand that he loved me. He loves me.
Now there's a second lesser known triad in the scriptures, that of the second three threads that I'd like to get into. And I'd like to go back to Genesis 3.8 to kind of pick up on that and unpack that a little bit. And in Genesis 3.8, you have the process of the fall happening here. And you see Eve looking at creation, what God's done. And though ill-motivated, she is speaking truth about the work of God. And she says, um, there I got the right verse. Now, yeah, my eyes are so bad here. It's six, sorry. So, it's so verse six, so it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. But the point there is that what she was seeing and observing about God's creation was true. What she did was wrong. And she's noticed that the creation of God, that the work of God was characterized by three things, goodness, truth, and beauty. Okay? Let's talk about goodness, first of all. I think that one of the reasons our message as believers is not connecting with the world is because we have lost the understanding of goodness, truth, and beauty. We hear about faith, hope, and love, and that's great. I, I mean, I wouldn't take any of that away. But I think we lose something because we've lost the understanding of goodness, truth, and beauty. What we've tended to do, say, on the piece of goodness here, is that we've reduced, a lot of times, goodness to political correctness, to moral standards, and, and less of that. But when you look at the creation, God's going through Genesis, and he's saying, it's good, it's good, that's good, that's good. And on the last day, when it all comes together, he sits back and he says, that's very good. I love it when it all comes together like that. Now, was he just talking about morality or ethics or political viewpoints? What was he talking about, do you think? T tell me, what do you think? Creation. What's that? Creation. creation. But what was it about creation that said, that's good, that's good, and that's really good? Yeah. It's like the intrinsic value of it. The intrinsic value of it, yeah. What else? Yeah. Purity. The purity of it, sure. What else? Beauty. The beauty of it. Yeah, keep come on here. This is good. Quality. The quality? Sure. What's that? That was his? Sure. Yeah, I think all of these sorts of things. You know, have you ever walked, I mean, when these guys finish their leading us in music, don't you guys think, that was good? That was good, you know? Now, I think what's happened is that we've reduced that. We've trivialized a lot of these things in the way we look at things. And we've, we've forgotten how to produce work that's good. You know, we try to get away with what we can do. I mean, you ever buy something that wasn't as good as promised? Right? And so I think that one of the things is, is that as you, and, and this, this kind of crosses over into the work of our hands a little bit, whereas I think, you know, faith, hope, and love really 
on, on the work of you know, the Spirit, that you know, do you do good work? Not just do good works, which is important, right? Good works, but do you do good work? When God does something, does he do something that's pretty crappy? No, I mean, when you look at, I mean, you're out here and looking at the creation, what do you think? That's pretty, that's pretty good stuff, isn't it? You know, you're thinking. And that's why, that's why when we're driving up and you're looking out at the vistas, your jaw drops because you're thinking, wow. Right? And I think God wants us to live and work in such a way that we bring that wow factor into the world. And that the things that we do with our lives, the way we serve, the things that we create, the work that we do, the services, whatever it might be, the things that we design, people just look at that and say, that's really, that's good. The second part of that is that it's true. And when I think about truth here, again, I think, let's think, let's think a little bit more broadly about this. Gen in, in my translation, it says, full of wisdom. But I think, again, what we've done is that we've trivialized this. We've, we've reduced truth to certain core principles or some sort of framework of thinking, and then we think it's in or out. But we don't rarely think about whether the things that we do actually reflect the truth of God. And to that extent, you know, you look at the scriptures and it says day-to-day -day pours forth speech. The heavens are declaring the, 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 the glory of God. When you look at the mountains, what do the, the scriptures say that the mountains communicate about the truth of God? What's that? It talks about his majesty, right? When it talks about the oceans, what do the oceans communicate? What do the scriptures say the oceans communicate? It says the oceans, oceans communicate the power of God. You know? But you could go on and on. And so the idea is that, that the work that we do and the works of our hands should communicate the truth of who he is and the truth of the way the world is. And yet when you think about it, most of what's created is not very authentic. Organizations are not authentic. Products aren't all that they're cracked up to be. And we're not all that we're cracked up to be. We don't really reflect the full truth. But I think that what I want you to think about is that whatever I do, is it rooted and grounded in truth? You know, a number of you yesterday were with me in my workshop on professionalism, I, you know. And, 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 you know, as I was sharing yesterday, I was doing these little parentheses in the middle of the presentation that says, you know, by the way, you can see where this comes from the truth. <laughs> you know? But I've translated it into the vernacular of the business world. And I think that what we've got to do is that we've got to work so that in our lives is that everything we do, if, 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 if somebody pokes on that, they can, they can kind of trace it back to the truth. And so what we're asking for is not that you know biblical truth, but that everything that you do is, is biblically rooted. The Hebrew word for wisdom 
doesn't mean I know a lot. <laughs> That's kind of this world's construct. The Hebrew word for wisdom literally means skill in living. And that, every way, and that in all the ways that you live, you're skillful in living because what it does is that's an ex- outward expression of the truth that you know. So goodness, truth, and beauty. This to me probably of the three is maybe the one that's almost all lost. You know, I think that one of the things that happened over time because of kind of the commercial nature of our world is that for a long time, what did people say about Christian music? Wasn't very good. What about Christian art? You know, when I, when I became a Christian, kind of the earliest vestiges of Christian art were just like cool T-shirts, <laughs> you know, with Jesus sayings on them, you know? But I mean, is that art? You know, and is that beautiful? A lot of you have unbelievable creative gifts. And I think God wants to pour out a message to the world of the beauty of God through your creative gifts. And I mean, I remember at Glen Erie, there was a group of engineers that was going to come meet. They were not a Christian group, and they really were resisting the group. And a couple of the key people in the group said, I know my boss said we're coming, but we've already, and they came and told me this. They said, we told him we're going to give him 24 hours because we know we're coming to a Christian place. And if we don't like it, we're out of here, and he can forget about the rest of the meeting. I thought, oh, that's kind of <laughs> a little bit of a challenge. They stayed the whole time, and at the end, I saw one of the guys just kind of standing there and looking at the beauty of God and thinking, wow, I don't want to leave. Beauty does that, doesn't it? And yet so much of what we do is kind of like bad cartoons rather than truly beautiful things. And I would just challenge you, whether it's the beauty of the software that you're writing, the buildings that you're designing, the services that you're giving, the music that you're writing, the literature that you're writing, the paintings that you're making, that you strive for the beauty of God in those things. And that, that will say something to this world. When Patricia and I were going through this period, we did end up uh, at Glen Erie one day and we were exhausted and we were just sitting on the front porch swing over there by Eagle's Nest Lodge on a beautiful day like this, just exhausted. And somebody had sent us up there, just said, you guys, you guys need a break. And we're swinging there, looking at these red rock formations and Pikes Peak and the trees and the castle and all of this. And Patricia looked at me and she said, you know, there's something about beauty that heals. Don't you feel that when you look at God's creation, that even when your soul is weary and hurting, you look at it and there's something healing about the beauty of it. I think what we've got to do is that we have to, we have to enter into this kind of trashed out, trivialized, shallow, superficial world with things of true beauty and a, and a, and a beauty about the way we live. And just that beauty itself will begin to speak God's healing power to the world. And so I hope that you'll think of your ministry as something more than sharing the four spiritual laws. You know, or the bridge 
you know, or a three-minute testimony. All good, okay? All good. But I think in this world sometimes, I think we just need something that stands up and said, there's God. There's something really different right there. And it's stunning in its goodness, in its truth, in its beauty. And you know why, you know why people will respond to that? Because every human being is made in the image of God. And when we do something that speaks to the image of God in man, it brings something alive in a person. It, brings, it touches them at a level that they haven't been touched before. And it begins to call them forth to the one in whose image they're made. Goodness, truth, and beauty. And so I would just really encourage you to think about the intentional application of it. When I, was, when I was at Glen Erie, one of the things that really, I really struggle with is that, you know, you think about a service business like this conference center, and it's a pretty thankless thing. You know, most of the people that serve you are invisible, aren't they? They clean your rooms, they wash your sheets, they fix your food, they take out the trash. You know, they fix things in the night that get broken. And, and people were having a hard time. I mean. In our situation, people were, were motivated because of their love for God. But at the same time, 24 7, 365, it begins to wear out on you. And you think, what in the world am I doing cleaning other people's dirty linens and washing their dirty dishes and preparing their meals? And so we began to think about this with our team. And I said, think about this. What is Jesus doing right now? Well, he said he's gone to prepare a place for us. He's preparing a room for us to come to. And I think, think about this in terms of our housekeeping details. What if every time you entered into the room and fixed it up, cleaned it up, got everything just right, you were thinking, how can we do this so that when people walk into that room, they get the same feeling as walking into the room that Jesus is preparing for us. And they get a taste of what that's like. What else is he doing? He's preparing a banquet feast for us. So when we prepare the meals for everybody, and we serve people, and we present it, and we put it out there, is it appealing to the eye? You know? Is it good? You know? And do people get a sense of what it's going to be like to sit at the banquet feast with Christ when they sit down to dinner at your place. Now, now we're beginning to see how goodness, truth, and beauty can begin to transform the daily things that we do into help creating an experience where people begin to feel how God is taking care of us. And that's why people would just walk away from there and just go, there's something here. There's something here. Because we've, you know... And, and yeah, we got served food, and yeah, we kind of went and had clean sheets, but there's something here. And can you think about your work that way? Patricia has been a brilliant at that in terms of our, even our own home. And that's one of the reasons that we're sad about the loss of the home, because of the impact that it's had on so many people. But a few years ago, my daughter brought home some of her soccer teammates to lunch. You know, they were seniors, so they left campus and came over for lunch. And there was a 
one of the players was sitting down at the end of the table. We've never had any spiritual conversations with her or anything. She wasn't uh, of, a, of, a, of, a, of, of faith. But she was just sitting there very pensively at the end of the table. And I said, Cheyenne, everything okay? She says, yeah. She says, what are you thinking? She said, you know, she says, every time I come to your house, I feel closer to God. I feel close to God here. There's just something about being here that makes me feel close to God. And, and, and that's kind of the art of what God, God can do through your work as you think about how do I do my work? How do I open up my home? How do I set a table? You know, how do I, you know what I'm saying? All of these sorts of things in such a way that we do it and without a word, people feel like, I feel closer to God because I'm here. <laughs> Stunning, you know? Sort of comment, isn't it? Kind of. And so, as we were thinking about our own house and rebuilding it, we ran across this phrase. And it says, the marvel of a home is not that it shelters and warms a man, nor that he owns its walls. It comes from those layers of sweetness which it gradually soars up in us. That a home is layers of sweetness. Now, most of you don't have a home right now. But here's the point, guys. You are a home. You're the dwelling place of God. And what God is doing in you is room by room, layer by layer, is putting these layers of sweetness into you. Because he says, I'm going to live in you. And as these layers build up over time, your home, your body, your, you, become the kind of place where people come up to you and say, you know, Every time I come to this place, I feel closer to God. Wouldn't that be a cool thing? And so I think it begins to kind of change the meaning of our work. And when I mean by work, I mean not just our jobs, but everything that we do. Our jobs, our homework, helping the little old lady across the street, mowing the neighbor's lawn, giving a needy friend a ride. Whatever it is, that's work in the scriptures. And I ran across this story a few years back that just brought me to the verge of tears. It was an article that was written in the Smithsonian's magazine. And it was a story about the revival of Bach's music in Japan. And there was this tremendous resurgence of Bach. And people all over the country were, 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 were listening to his music. And then the, an unexpected thing that the writer noted was that in conjunction with this revival of Bach's music, there was a sudden growth in the number of people that were becoming Christians. Now, Japan is probably less than one half of 1% Christian. And so the question, so he, so he went and asked these people, how can that be? And they said, Bach taught us that God is love. Bach taught us what God is like. And you're thinking, huh? How is that possible? You know, you're listening, you know, to one of his symphonies and thinking, how does that do that? Bach in his day was a sec considered a second-rate musician that didn't even warrant the post that he had. But when he composed his music, he had this passion for taking his knowledge and love of God 
and through blood, sweat, and tears, pour that love of God into his pieces so that his pieces became a reflection of who God was. And at the end of every one of his pieces, he would sign it, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And his work was not work, his work was worship. And now, hundreds of years later, people are listening to his music and coming to Christ. I think one of the things that's missing in our world right now is that we've lost the connection between work and worship. You all are preparing for a life of work. You're going out into the work, and sometimes you're looking at work as this thing that I've got to get out of the way to pay the bills, so I've got time to go over here and do the ministry. Others will give your life to this work, and the work becomes the worship. But the biblical, the one thing that the people, the world overshare together in common throughout every culture, throughout all time, is that everybody's a worker. And the first thing we see in the scriptures is God as a worker. <laughs> and when we work full of goodness, truth, and beauty, like Bach, that can happen. And so I began to think about this because I was talking to a lot of people that were struggling with this integration. I thought, the gospel according to Bach. What about the gospel according to medicine? Accounting, music, education, engineering, software program. What if we really thought about how to bring goodness, truth, and beauty to all the things that we do and do our work as worship, not to worship our work, and when we do that, what kind of message would be released to the world as people see the work of God? Does creation make a sound outside of the weather? You know, do we look at the stars and the mountains and the ocean and do they say a word? And yet they say plenty, don't they? But a lot of times I think there's such a disconnect between the things that we do and the message that God wants to pour out through us. And so the challenge is the gospel according to Bach. Philippians 127, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The, the word worthy comes out as, is, is an image of the scales that weigh things. You know, you, you know what I'm saying? And what he's saying is that if you put your life on this side of the scale, in this pan, and you put the gospel on this side, is your life the same weight? So that when they see you and all the ways that you work, do they see a life that's characterized by faith, hope, love, goodness, truth, and beauty flowing out of your knowledge of God and being a blessing to the world? Those are the broad outlines of the story that God is trying to put together in your life. And in this world, you know, I think a lot of times when we're thinking about this world and we're thinking about God's plan for our life, we're thinking about, gosh, you know, if I just had some sort of life 
GPS navigation system. <laughs> if I just had, you know, if I'm an analog guy, a map, you know, then it'd be clear. It's like God is holding the map from me and the GPS coordinates from me, you know, and I'm really kind of frustrated. But really, when, when, where, where life is uncertain, it's not that you need a map. It's not that you need GPS. What you need is a compass and a guide. And that's how God wants to walk with you. He's your guide. And the compass waypoints are faith, hope, and love, goodness, truth, and beauty. And when you're stymied about what should I do, you ask yourself the question, what would faith do here? What would hope do here? How would love respond here? How can I do good here? How can I represent the truth here? How can I make this more beautiful? And if you can ask those questions, I think you're going to have unbelievably creative and astonishing guidance for your lives that will take you into places and positions that will kind of brilliantly sing the music of God to this world. I said at the beginning, though, there are no ordinary days then. Because <laughs> every note in a composition is important, isn't it? Are there any throwaway notes in a composition of music? No. So live life every day with those questions in mind, those threads in mind. And, and I want to have everybody turn here to conclude in Ephesians 2.7. We know verses like 8 and 9, don't we? You know? Those are familiar verses to us, and even 10. You know, by grace you've been saved and all of this. But Paul, leading up to this, has been talking about the incomparable grace of God. And in verse 7, he says, as, 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 as he, he pictures the day where we're seated with Christ, he says, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, the original languages, basic language basically says, ages which pile upon ages which pile upon ages into eternity. We live in an, an age right now. But in the ages that pile up through eternity, he said, you're going to be a demonstration of the grace of God. What can be known about God can only be known because he reveals it. You think God has eight attributes, like some books will say, here's the eight attributes of God? No. An infinite God could have infinite attributes. And we only know what he's chosen to reveal. First Peter says that the angels are looking down in astonishment because they're seeing things about God that they never saw. And in particular, the fact that they've never realized they've never seen the grace of God. And it astonishes them. And what Ephesians 2 is saying, that in the ages that will be piling up in the ages, we are going to be a book that the ages to come are going to be reading because they will not have any insight into God except by reading that particular book. And as we're walking around heaven, the, in the ages to come and whatever populates the ages to come will look at you and I and say, wow, 
the grace of God. Look at her, the grace of God. Look at him, the grace of God. They are going to, and so for the, even as we're learning about God now, the ages to come are going to be learning about God through what he's doing in our lives. And so your chapter, your book is not done, and it's going to be read for all ages, but it's un- unbelievable the privilege of being a part of that masterpiece, isn't it? Is that cool? Is that cool? Where you are, you know, in twos and threes, let's just thank and praise God for what he's writing in our lives. And now, O oh Lord, we just declare our love for you, and we're just stunned that you want to be our God. I pray that that would just overwhelm us, that thought, and that everything in our being would just want to know you. And Lord, and let you kind of do your work in us that we can be a blessing, a shalom, a testimony to your grace for all the ages to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.